0: You are listening to primary care perspectives a podcast where pediatric experts from the children's hospital of philadelphia discuss the primary care issues that are on their mind and the hot topics that all pediatricians see affecting their daily practice this podcast is for general informational and educational purposes only and is not to be considered as medical advice for any particular patient clinicians must rely on their own informed clinical judgment in making recommendations to their patients Dr. Katie Lockwood, a primary care pediatrician at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, and today I'm talking about plagiocephaly. Joining me is Dr. Jesse Taylor from the Division of Plastic and Reconstructive Surgery at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. So thank you so much for joining me.
1: Thanks for having me, Katie.
0: So, with the Back to Sleep campaign, we're seeing a lot more positional plagiocephaly, and I wonder sometimes in clinic is having a flat head going to be the new norm of this generation?
1: Yeah, we're certainly seeing a lot more of it, Katie. And the question I always ask myself is, is it a true increase in incidence or are we simply more sensitive to it and thus we're seeing more of it in clinic? The answer to that question is probably some of both with the back to sleep campaign having played a a significant role in increasing the number of flatheads we see. Mm -hmm. Um, The the interesting thing will be uh, to see you know, would, would be, I should say, to see if if reversing the back-to-sleep campaign or perhaps giving families slightly different advice about sleep positioning would change the incidence. Mm-hmm.
0: And besides back-to-sleep, because we blame a lot of this on back-to-sleep, but besides that, what are some of the other risk factors for developing positional plagiocephaly?
1: So it's interesting. One, one of the risk factors for it is simply age. If you look at kids who are really young, zero to two months of age, there's a fairly low incidence of positional plagiocephaly, perhaps around 20%. Mm-hmm. From that two-month to seven- or eight-month time period, you see a big increase in the incidence, again, likely because of things like the back-to-sleep campaign. In some studies have shown the incidence to be as high as 50 60%, mm-hmm. which to me sounds high. And then after about eight months of age, you should see that incidence come back down. And uh, certainly... Uh, in the general population, as kids grow up, it's very rare, probably somewhere between 1% and 5% of the general population.
0: Wow. Um, so we talked. you talked a little bit just about how common positional plagiocephaly is. How does this compare to craniosynostosis?
1: So positional plagiocephaly is much more common than cr- true craniosynostosis. And of course, by craniosynostosis, what we mean is the premature closure of one of the cranial sutures, or growth centers of the cranium for young kids. Mm-hmm. And craniosynostosis um, probably occurs somewhere in the, nape, uh, in the order of 1 in 3,000 live births, okay. with non-syndromic synostosis being a much higher incidence than syndromic craniosynostosis. And so syndromic craniosynostosis, depending on what flavor you're talking about, is more on the order of 1 in 10 to 1 in 30,000 live mm-hmm. births. Okay. So very rare.
0: So what are some of the ways clinically, though, that we can distinguish between positional plagiocephaly from craniosynostosis?
1: So um, kids with positional plagiocephaly are either going to have flatness on one side of the back of the head or flatness on both sides of the back of the head. When you get flatness on one side of the back of the head, if you were to stand over the child, mm-hmm. what you would see when you look down is I refer to it as the parallelogram-shaped head. Right. So whichever side of the back of the head is flat, the corresponding side of the forehead should be pushed forward slightly, the opposite forehead should appear slightly pulled back, and then the back should be pulled back on the other side such that as you look down you see a parallelogram. Mm -hmm. One key to look for is the ears. The ears in positional plagiocephaly, the ear on the affected side or the flat side should be slightly forward Mm -hmm. to the ear on the unaffected side. So, again, kids with positional plagiocephaly will have a parallelogram-shaped head as you look down. Mm -hmm. In contrast, kids with either unicronal craniosynostosis or lambdoid craniosynostosis can also have flatness on one side of the back of their head or on one side of the forehead. Mm -hmm. Those kids tend to have more of a trapezoid shape to the head, where the same sides are prominent and the same sides are flat. And so... Um, If you look down on a kid's head and see a parallelogram, you should be favoring positional plagiocephaly. If you look down and see a trapezoid, you should think craniosynostosis. Now, another key is the timing. If someone has a misshapen head right at birth, that's either going to be a birth molding thing or it's going to be craniosynostosis. Because again, positional plagiocephaly, usually we're seeing kids with a couple of months of age behind them. And then one thing that's kind of a chicken or an egg thing is we do see a high incidence of positional plagiocephaly in kids who have torticollis. Mm-hmm. So right. torticollis is when one of the sternocleidomastoid muscles is tight. When that happens, oftentimes the head posture is slightly off of midline and that will prompt a baby to want to sleep on that side of the head. So right. someone with torticollis with a funny shaped head is often going to have positional plagiocephaly, but what I always tell people is you can't just willy nilly dismiss the risk of them- potentially having cranial synostosis, so mm-hmm. you still should probably refer them uh, uh, to a to a specialist now. A couple of other risk factors for positional plagiocephaly I failed to mention earlier gender males get it more than females we don't know why that is. Mm-hmm. Some kids have what we call a positional preference for sleeping. They just happen to like to sleep on one side rather than the other. They don't have torticollis. So those kids with a positional preference in sleeping, those kids who had uh, vacuum deliveries are more likely to have positional plagiocephaly. And then those kids who are first born Mm. uh, are more likely to have positional plagiocephaly. And that that may have something to do with the configuration of the birth canal. Mm.
0: That's interesting. I sometimes hear, and I don't know if there's any evidence to this, but parents who say, my preference is to hold the baby this way, place them down this way, and they're always sort of, once they have a little bit of flattening there, it sort of reinforces itself. It's right, like, it's like a oh, kickstand. It's like, a little yeah, notch for me to rest on comfortably. And then yeah. that is a self-perpetuating cycle there because they're like, oh, the kid likes to look this way, so they keep putting them down yeah, that way. Yeah,
1: I think that's very true, Katie. And I, I tell parents that if they do see that developing, one of the early things we do to treat positional plagiocephaly is repositioning. Right. So if parents can, can do some repositioning even before they see a doctor, um, yeah. uh, it's not a bad idea.
0: Okay. So in primary care, can we and should we be measuring plagiocephaly in a way that we determine how severe it is more objectively, or is it more just our kind of gestalt of this is bad or this is not?
1: Yeah, it's a great question, and um, and I've gone through several different management protocols personally as someone who specializes in this. Mm-hmm. What One thing I uh, often say to families is that um, it can be challenging to measure this because it's a three-dimensional problem, and right. most of our measuring schemes are in two dimensions. So whether it be head circumference mm-hmm. or bi-diagonal distances in the head, mm-hmm. um these are measurements that not only are two D measurements, but they can be very hard to take, especially in a screaming baby. So, so um, we do do them. Um, we do, to some extent, make clinical decisions based on how severely different, for instance, the bidirectional distances are. Um, but I don't think that those alone should be made to to make clinical decisions on. And I do think you got to take into account the gestalt.
0: Mm-hmm. So, when we have a patient with positional plagiocephaly, what's the ideal age that we should refer them if we think they might benefit from some intervention like helmet therapy?
1: Yeah, you know, and again, this is something that my own thinking on this is changing over mm-hmm. time, uh, based on you know perhaps always treating my last latest mm-hmm. complication, but. Mm-hmm. I used to think that the ideal age for uh, referral is around four to five months of age. Mm-hmm. The reason for that is that we will rarely put somebody into a helmet earlier than about five to six months of age because mm-hmm. there have been uh, occasional, occasionally a report in the literature of negative sequela of really early helmeting mm-hmm. on the really immature brain. Mm-hmm. So at CHOP we generally will helmet kids starting at about five to six months of age. So. Uh, but my changing uh, thinking is now that, you know, it actually is not a bad idea for us to see some kids earlier, especially if there's a concern for craniosynostosis. Mm-hmm. Um, and so now I'm, I'm telling people, bring them in as early as the families want to be referred. And, and I, I like to see the kids a little bit earlier because sometimes we have the wrong diagnosis and there are minimally invasive treatments for craniosynostosis for which timing is really important. If one is going to choose a minimally invasive treatment for lots of types of craniosynostosis, it's usually in that three to five month age range that we're wanting to do that minimally invasive treatment. And so if you wait till five months to refer for positional plagiocephaly and you're wrong and the child has craniosynostosis, Mm. you may miss an opportunity.
0: Right, that's good to know. On the flip side, is there an age where it's too late to intervene on positional plagiocephaly and when?
1: Yeah, so so one of the reasons that helmeting, for instance, works for positional plagiocephaly is that the bones of the cranium are quite malleable in the first year of age. Mm -hmm. That malleability goes away after the first birthday to uh, to some degree, and certainly it's not an immediate thing that happens when you turn one, but it's a gradual process. And so, um, if if you're going to really get a good result from the helmet, which helmets are so effective that six to 12 month window is your best bet to get that result.
0: Great. Does it matter if the fontanelle is large or small in terms of intervening? Some people, you know, we're not necessarily sure when the sutures are fusing, but use the fontanelle as a proxy.
1: Yeah. I don't think the size of the fontanelle is a proxy for whether a helmet is going to work. And, um, I've seen helmets work really well in kids where you really can't even feel a fontanelle, and I've seen it work great in kids who have a very large fontanelle. Now, the caveat is you know, we all have seen kids who have not done well with helmeting. Mm-hmm. Generally, those kids who don't do well with helmeting have something else going on mm-hmm. other than just positional plagiocephaly. Mm-hmm.
0: So you mentioned that helmets are successful. How successful are they, and are there any risks?
1: Yeah, so helmets, uh, in my practice, I, I tell families that helmets work about 95% of the time. And again, I think it's that 5% of kids where you don't get a good result, you may be missing something mm-hmm. other than just positional plagiocephaly. So they're incredibly effective. Mm-hmm. They, they are a quote-unquote non-invasive therapy, uh, and, and, and as such have very low risks. Um, the one thing I've seen, and especially as a problem in the summer months, is um, pressure ulcers or pressure points developing. And so as the temperature rises, mm-hmm. the amount of sweat within the uh, helmet increases. Uh, I have seen an occasional pressure ulcer. And the problem that that creates, if you don't pick it up, uh, is you can uh Obviously, develop a full thickness ulcer, which is horrible. But right. also, even if you don't develop a full thickness ulcer, you can develop some some amount of alopecia in mm. that site, which can be very unsightly. Okay,
0: and the kids are wearing these helmets twenty three hours a day, right? So right.
1: So when you prescribe a helmet, you tell the family that you should wear this twenty three out of twenty four hours a day, seven days a week. And most kids are in a helmet for about four to six months. Okay,
0: yeah, so that's a, a long time.
1: Yes. <laughs> yeah.
0: All right. Um, so a recent pediatrics paper, which we will link to on our site, showed an association between moderate and severe positional plagiocephaly and poor cognitive and academic outcomes. Does this mean that we should use positional plagiocephaly as a marker of a possible neurodevelopmental delay, warranting earlier intervention?
1: That's a good, it's a good question, Katie. And it's a, that was a really fascinating paper that came out uh, from uh, good friends of ours in, in Seattle. But um, you know th- there are some things about the paper that I do think are good takeaways, and there are some things that I think we need to just do some more do some more data gathering on. Mm-hmm. Um, one one takeaway that I have from the paper, uh, and just to be clear about the methodology, they did long term follow up neurocognitive testing on kids that are of school age. Mm-hmm. And again, the kids that they did that on had persistent plagiocephaly beyond that sort of two-year mark. And I do think that they are likely correct that persistent plagiocephaly beyond, say, two years of age may be a marker for some sort of a neurocognitive problem. Mm -hmm. Again, more data probably needs to be collected, but that part of things I buy into. Now, a really important part of the study is they're not saying that in any way the positional plagiocephaly either is caused by or caused the neurodevelopmental problems. It's just a correlation. Mm -hmm. So I do think that kids with persistent positional plagiocephaly should be considered for early development. Mm
0: -hmm. And it's important that you mention that they're not saying that the plagiocephaly caused the delay, because a lot of times when we're talking in primary care to parents about whether or not they should do a helmet, we're telling them it's mostly just an aesthetic issue, Correct. that it's not doing anything to their brain, that the parents don't have to worry that there's any damage being done, Correct. and that the helmet is really only if the if the parents are bothered by the appearance of the child's head. And we still think that that's true, right? We don't think exactly. that it's anything more than a cosmetic issue.
1: Exactly. And I I still am going to tell parents that, having read this paper, that general garden variety, positional plagiocephaly... Mm-hmm. As a cosmetic only problem, it. Uh, the other thing about positional plagiocephaly is, even in the absence of helmeting, the positional plagiocephaly will get a lot better on its own. Right. And so that's why a lot of head-to-head trials of helmeting have had a hard time demonstrating a benefit. And there's mm-hmm. big trials showing a benefit, and there are big trials not showing a benefit of helmeting right. with regards to head aesthetics. But, but in my opinion. Positional plagiocephaly should continue to be considered a non functional but rather cosmetic problem mm-hmm. of the head.
0: Right. But, like you mentioned in this paper, alludes to there are some kids who maybe have something from the start that makes them maybe not roll over as early or sit as early, and that's why their plagiocephaly becomes worse. Exactly. And, those are kids and so. And could benefit from like early physical therapy.
1: Exactly. And, and, and and how I'm kind of putting it all together is that's a group of kids that have s- something else going on neurodevelopmentally, mm-hmm. perhaps neuromuscularly, right. that place them at risk for that. And so again, those are not just your garden variety positional plagiocephaly kids. And, and frankly, I think a lot of us might pick up on other aspects of their neural development mm-hmm. sooner than we would pick up on the head shape right. that would key us into the fact that this is a kid who maybe needs some more help.
0: You mentioned that um, when kids are wearing the helmet and there's a pressure ulcer, sometimes they can have some alopecia. Parents of kids with positional plagiocephaly are often worried about the hair loss on the flat spot. Yes. And we typically tell them that's just friction from rubbing and that that hair will regrow. Is that your experience too? That definitely
1: is my experience. And that I think is a, um, again, sensory nerves are going to generally do a really nice job. And so kids who have positional plagiocephaly, who rub the hair off, the the hair follicles in that region are generally in very good health, Mm -hmm. and the hair will absolutely regrow. Mm -hmm. That's because the kid is able to reposition themselves when they get that sensory feedback. Kids with helmets can't reposition themselves Mm -hmm. to relieve the pressure So the pressure ulcers you get from helmets are generally a deeper injury Mm -hmm. than just the alopecia you often get from positional plagiocephaly.
0: Great, thanks for clarifying that. So tell us more about what research is being done in this area at CHOP and what clinics you have to help families when we want to refer them.
1: Yeah, so uh, here in the Division of Plastic Surgery, we have one of the largest plagiocephaly and craniosynostosis clinics in the country. And our office phone number is 215-590-2208. And we have um, clinics uh, two to three times a week that uh, are specialty clinics for referrals of kids with any sort of head shape anomaly. And so we take all comers. We, again, as I said earlier, we love early referrals because that allows us to really tailor the treatment and gives us all available options uh, for each child. Uh, and so, yes, we absolutely have a very large clinical presence. We also have lots of research studies going on, both in the realm of positional plagiocephaly as well as craniosynostosis.
0: And we know you take great care of our patients. We appreciate that. They're always impressed that you're separating conjoined twins and also putting their kids in helmets. So, you know, your division is doing amazing things, both big and garden variety, and we love that. Thanks, Katie. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of primary care perspectives you can download and subscribe to future episodes on itunes or visit chop.edu slash pcp podcasts for a listing of all episodes i look forward to our next chat